This is Daniel Figella. You're listening to the AI in Business podcast. Today, we're focusing on a topic that is a bottleneck for almost all enterprise AI projects, and that is the access and the governance of data. Dealing with data silos, dealing with copies and permutations of data, these are facts of life for AI vendors and for internal AI project leaders, and there are approaches that some enterprises and vendors are using to overcome them. We speak today about the topic of a data fabric, what it means from a technology agnostic standpoint, and how IBM is deploying this approach with some of their clients. Uh, there's also some parting advice about how to bring a data fabric to life within your enterprise. Our guest this week is Daniel Hernandez. He is general manager of data and AI for IBM, one of the largest AI vendors in the world and obviously one of the best known players in this space. Daniel first quickly defines a data fabric and then moves swiftly into specific use cases for bringing this approach to life for AI projects. And there's a lot of good practical advice in this episode for how to communicate the value of data infrastructure and a data fabric to leadership, which for us is always an important bit of insight to shake out. Uh, certainly the technical is part of what makes this stuff hard, but communicating value to executives is not easy. And that's a big part of what this show is about, being able to frame things in a way that's executive friendly. Daniel does a great job of doing exactly that. He's obviously someone with a lot of C-suite interfacing time himself. This episode is brought to you by IBM. This is the second in a three-part series relating to data, data strategy, and eventually data governance. Uh, if you're interested in reaching Emerge's global executive audience yourself, you can go to emerj.com slash ad1, that's ad like advertise, and then the number one, and learn more about our sponsored content offerings, our email list, our website, and other ways that you can reach Emerge's global AI-focused executive audience. Without further ado, let's fly into this episode. This is Daniel Hernandez with IBM here in the AI and Business Podcast. So Daniel, I'm glad we're able to have you with us here on the show. And today we're going to be diving deep on the topic of data fabric, certainly a newer term for many of the listeners here in our audience. I wonder if you could start us off with how you define the term data fabric for business listeners. So let's talk about the problem. Sure. If you are trying to put data to work, whether it's for data science so that you could train a model to do a prediction, it could be customer segmentation trying to have an attractive promotion and matchmaking those to your customer segments that you've analyzed, or just doing business analytics, trying to understand critical insights that help you understand the performance of your business. Today, the majority of our customers are copying data from wherever it originates and consolidating it into a single place. The problem with that is it's expensive, it's proliferating data that then causes all sorts of nasty ripple effects, data quality issues that if you're to remediate in one place are hard to remediate yeah. in another. You have governance and compliance problems, not to mention security issues, because every single copy of this thing needs to be protected in some cases, especially if it's PII, can't be in certain locations in order to deal with compliance obligations. And so there's just a whole host of problems that are triggered by copying data and attempting to consolidate in, into a single place. So typically when we talk about consolidating, we're, we're saying things like put it in a cloud data warehouse, put it in a data lake house, and then the whole game gets even more 
perverse and complicated when you copy data into a data lake, only to then consolidate it into a data warehouse, only to then extract it and put it inside of a sandbox for data science. So the copy consolidate answer to the putting to work problem has a host of problems that are associated with it that the data fabric is attempting to solve. So against that problem, then what the data fabric says is there are there's a better way to put data to work. Number one, access data, if you can, in the place that it exists without copying it. Number two, manage the entirety of that lifecycle of the data in a distributed way while centrally managing the governance and policies of it. And then number three, there's good reason actually to copy data and consolidate it into, say, an authoritative source like a data fabric, make it easy through automation to onboard that data. So the data fabric is an architectural alternative to the consolidate answer that most companies have had in their toolbox for putting data to work. And it's just guided by those three ideas, accessing data in place, managing the entire lifecycle of the data in a distributed way, or in a distributed way with central governance, and then using automation to offer convenient means to move the data if you want. Got it. Okay. And you mind if we poke into this just to make some analogies, make this click for people. So probably everybody listening in in an enterprise environment can resonate with this. And even people who are just thinking about tech in their very personal lives, you know, we've all had an Excel sheet that we sent around that had sales numbers or customer service info or whatever. And then uh, everybody was excited about it, brainstormed about it, talked about it. We came together and realized that Steve deleted the third tab. You know, Jacob's been updating the numbers every week, and so his stuff is totally different than everybody else's. And this is what ported a lot of people over into, you know, the Google Drives of the world or whatever else for those kind of tools. Clearly, that problem of let's splinter it out and use it wherever we need to use it in whatever dark corners, that problem of multiple files being shared with multiple people, updated in new formats, just gets astronomically larger in the enterprise when we're taking uh, all of our fraud data and we're moving, we're, we're duplicating it and moving it into an AWS instance, and then we're transforming it when it's already up there. We're doing new stuff with it. Again, multiple places to store things. Am I on the right page about kind of the, the extrapolation of what could be a very personal tech problem? Yeah. A hundred percent. I mean, but look, that personal problem that you're describing, I expect that you, I mean, you're admitting you've been guilty of it. Oh yeah. I have to admit that I've been guilty of it too. And yeah. so has everybody in any business really, because it's convenient, it's easy to do. And there have not been good alternatives to deal with the core issue. Yeah. Yeah. But if, of course, an Excel doc is not going to cost anybody very much, but if we're copying gigantic corp eye of documents or files or what have you, it, it seems like this not only becomes like, well, I guess it's convenient. It's like, geez, it's also expensive. And the inconveniences are at a way greater scale. Um, so this is the problem we're trying to solve here with the fabric. Dan, I want to challenge you a little bit. Go for on it. On one hand, the unit cost to store the Excel file, especially you already have the subscription, right? It costs you, you, you could argue it's marginal cost is zero. And one of the saving graces of Excel is you can't put a lot in it because at some point it just breaks, right? Yes, like you yes. can't. You can't download a data warehouse into it. The non-obvious cost would be a data breach. Imagine, I mean, the vast majority of analytics are in one way or another going to touch customer data. What would it cost you if you had hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of rows in that Excel sheet that had personal information on your customer that you're doing analytics on, 
and because there was no governance or data protection on it, got disclosed to the world. Like, what what is that cost? So, yeah. like, w- we focus a lot on the incremental cost of the the thing that we're doing analytics on, not on the not on the non obvious cost whenever bad things happen. That ultimately, you know, the enterprise actually has to pay for. Yeah, right, yeah. one way or another. Yeah. Well, and, and we, we see time and time again, and, and I'm not saying it's a wrong move or like a salesy move, but we see on the vendor side, often the exact quantification of, oh, how much does it save us in the cost of storing this data or with this workflow? We see actually a lot of arguments on what we call kind of a plausible risk reduction argument. So for document search and discovery, it might not be like, okay, I can tell you how many microseconds it's going to save your mortgage processor person to find this file or find this file. It's more like, well, how much does it run you when these two numbers don't line up and you give somebody a mortgage and now you're on the hook for it, right? It, it's more like a plausible risk reduction argument. And here it's it's obviously similar. You know, what if we're sharing data in this common way that has some massive underlying risk that we're just not addressing because we're treating it like we do all our other data problems? You know, what what could we run into if that continues to be our norm? So like, the argument's pretty compelling. I mean, that's it's not like a mind stretch to say, okay, this is there's things that are better done this way. But clearly, the folks that bring this idea to life probably do so in particular use cases. So maybe we can move into what we can do. So we get it conceptually. What are some examples of what we could do with um, a data fabric that maybe we couldn't do with previous approaches? Maybe you've got some great customer examples we can talk about. Let's talk about customer 360. Awesome. Every Everybody wants to do it. Yes, they do. Right. Who doesn't, for anybody that's in business, actually, even if you're a public agency, you're still serving customers. You're just not not necessarily getting revenue, nor do you have a for-profit notion. But in general, knowing your customer tends to be a good thing. I think that's hardly disputable. The way that we've gone about knowing your customer are through 360 programs. Since I've been in data and AI, we've had 360 programs anchored on technology like master data management, various methods for doing it. And so long as I'm going to be in data and AI, there's going to be 360 motives for customer and there'll be new techniques. Largest networking company in the world, 9 million customers that they serve to consolidate the information and standardize that information for a single entity cost them two months. There's 9 million customers that they serve. They're growing two months per customer to standardize and drive consensus on a single entity, more to link them and establish relationships between them. So that's the before. The after is within two days, they're able to standardize a single entity. Now, truthfully, it was a bunch of process that was getting in the way and a complete lack of automation to that process that was the core issue. But the data silo problem was kind of the root cause of it all, right? Because the multiple steps and consensus making across data stewards that spanned multiple lines of business was kind of the, the underlying problem because they were able to access data in place, use metadata to analyze the data quality of that, and standardize that information through data virtualization and with built-in governance that allows them to actually control who has access to this. Like they save multiple weeks of work. Now the effect of that are only beginning to be realized. So for them, it was a cost savings thing. Yep. But now it's starting to have really interesting implications to how quickly they're recognizing revenue for their customers. 
how well they know their customer, how much better they know their customers that they could have targeted promotions and campaigns against uh, not just a customer de demographic in aggregate, but to a specific customer. So I think the benefits in terms of client satisfaction, revenue yield are to come. The initial reason to get started with the data fabric was I just need to reduce the cost to standardize a single entity yep. of 9 million from months to days. Got it. Got it. Good story. I got another one. Um, <laughs> right. So largest, largest telecommunication company dealing with some pretty... So in general, the thing that they're most sensitive to is data privacy, not just meeting their compliance obligations, but doing right by their customer and offering even better data protections than what are required by regulation. Their issue was they didn't understand where PII was. So they had a compliance governance motive in their particular case, not a cost one. Trying to understand where PII simply was an issue that they couldn't, they didn't have methods to solve. So they used our data catalog, they indexed metadata in place, they did analytics on the metadata and they were able to establish heat maps of where this personally identifiable information was and now they're remediating it. So the risk profile to them is reduced, the cost to reduce that risk significantly reduced. And now they're moving on to self-service analytics because now they know where the information is, not just PII information. They can better service their data science and business analytics needs as kind of the secondary use case. So it's it's a wonderful, like, you know, what's next story with that customer, at least. Got it. And can we go into a little bit of nuance on these? I've got some some questions as we uh, fly through. So, um, so good places to start here. When you mentioned networking company, I actually assumed you're talking about telecom in some way. We don't have to name names, but what, what how should we grasp the nature of the business for the people tuned in? Then I've got a few questions about that first example. They power a lot of the networking equipment in, in enterprises and in telco. Okay, got it. So uh, in that particular example, again, we often find the cases that, as you'd mentioned, once we've got all the data accessible, you know, for the 360 customer shebang, and as, as you're aware, and as you stated, frankly, every industry wants that. Telecom wants that, healthcare wants that, uh, financial services wants that. Everybody wants to know everything they can about this particular customer, particularly in legacy enterprises where those silos are a horrendous issue. In their particular case, it sounds as though the, the sort of, you were talked about it as kind of like unite, unifying an entity, in other words, and the examples of where I've seen this come up are, let's say, invoices. We get an invoice from, I mean, IBM themselves probably sends invoices out as a lot of permutations. It's probably not always like, you know, International Business Machines, Inc., right? Sometimes like IBM India, LTD, ba ba ba. you know, and, and, and we need to we need to understand. So invoices like one place where this happens. Sometimes it's like contacts and contact emails. Who do they belong to? What company should they be appended to? What kind of data are we talking about when, when you're talking about this consolidation just to make this concrete? Well, you gave really good examples, right? Like take, take an entity like IBM. IBM has subsidiaries in virtually every single company, every single country we do business with. Mm -hmm. We're not alone. I mean, it's it's a pretty common thing. If you're going to do business and serve a particular country, typically you would have, or often you will have a entity inside of that, that organization. So what is IBM is kind of a really interesting question to unravel. And what's the revenue basis and how important is that customer to you if yeah. you serve us, right? So in, in this particular case, they had commissions. They had, what is the purchasing power of that customer considering that the more they buy from us, the more discounts they give, given that their purchasing is distributed across their subsidiaries, right? So 
when do we recognize certain revenues is also depending on the identity information, at least in their particular case. And so consolidating, reconciling, standardizing, not just the individual entities and matching them, but also the hierarchy of these things so that you could do things like, hey, this, this company spent a million dollars. Now they're going to earn a 40% discount rate for every dollar they spend in a, you know, above that. And that spend was distributed across their uh, their subsidiaries. Or just examples of how yeah. uh, they're using the solution to now drive business outcomes, and they're much better for it, for sure. Got it. So invoices recognizing revenue potentially that the contacts associated with it, and again, this will help to say not just okay, we made X revenue, but what customers were responsible for what, who's paid, what's been due, and again, what what are subsidiaries of a larger company so that we understand the value of a single client because it's useful to know who our whales are, whatever the case may be. And you can imagine, you said nine million customers doing that at scale is a, a big deal. And so being able to get to the bottom of that data is, is helpful. You also mentioned something that really rings a bell for me uh, in terms of just hearing a million stories of vendors' journeys into the selling to enterprises, as, as well as enterprise journeys adopting artificial intelligence. Very rarely is the creation of new capabilities to unlock new business models and revenue opportunities the early steps towards AI, particularly in legacy enterprises, but enterprises of any type, even anywhere in the Western world even. It's just not move number one. It's it's risk reduction or efficiency. The, the C-suite often sees AI as, and I don't think you and I do, but they, so it's, it's almost analogous to automation. It's just like AI equals automation. Now, not every C-suite person, right? We've got plenty of exceptions, but if you're going to roll the dice and you're going to say, what do they associate with AI? It's going to be some kind of efficiencies most of the time. Um, This is my experience with too many vendors. But you had mentioned that once this initial application comes to bear, we can make this certain process efficient. Now, all of a sudden, there's new ways to report. There's new ways to maybe find connections and similarities and say, who are other customers that have purchased at this kind of a speed and rate who have a propensity to maybe buy these additional services? Or uh, who are the customers that have like a higher churn likelihood when these other factors come into place? Well, now we can actually run that stuff. Now we can unlock not just more BI. We could do boring BI if we have a better data fabric, presumably, right? Like not even special, just boring BI, but it matters so much. We can even do that. But now we can start to unlock new capabilities. Do you often find that this is the journey? Like we do something for kind of like a what we assume AI is about use case. And then the capabilities bloom as we start to realize like, oh, we can open this stuff up now. Like I think your initial assertion, which is when people think of AI, they think of the application of that to yield efficiencies primarily through automation. I think that is that is mostly true. But if you want to run a marathon, you probably need to run your first mile. One of the best ways to get skill, to develop your own bona fides and confidence that this stuff works is targeting problems that are, I won't won't say relatively easy to solve, but given alternatives, there is no other game in town. And that if you did would yield benefits, usually the cost equation is where most people go because it's it's quantifiable. I spend X, if I could reduce 50% of that, I bring that capital and I could redeploy it to more productive use. So I don't think there's anything wrong with it, but I do think the the advancement of that to how do you serve your customers better? How do you know your customer better so they could serve them better? Typically, when we talk about like the non-cost equation, we talk about marketing to your customers better, delivering better promotions, more targeted promotions. What's missing in that entire discourse is how is that going to make your customer better? And when you're serving them, how do you make them feel better about doing business with you? I think that's equally important, not just yielding more revenue to to the business based on 
you know, more effective sales and, and marketing to, to the end customer that you serve. Big time. Yeah. And, and I think it's the responsibility a lot of the time of the vendors and service providers to help open the aperture of what AI could mean, because I think it often is not always, not always, but often is associated with kind of like reduction of monotony, driving of efficiencies. Like if you just pull, if you just take a C-suite person, you just grab one out of the hopper, just one of them, somebody with a director title, they're going to associate it with that stuff. And I think it often lies in the the purview of the service provider to, to expand that definition. Like you said, say, hey, how can this unlock X, Y, Z, et cetera? And clearly this data foundation, this, this is going to be a lot of the early work in these transformation projects. We look across every industry, something like making our data more accessible and having features that matter for future AI use cases and uh, having governance structures in place so you know we're, we're not putting ourselves at risk. Just a ubiquitous part of the journey for, for almost everybody involved. Do you see this kind of data fabric dynamic and the related work around it as for many enterprises almost being like a first step towards wherever they want to go with AI? Because I know so many firms are so early stage and even just this stuff. Well, so it's kind of interesting. So most of our customers approached us over the last five years around, hey, I got this big idea. AI is going to be the magic answer. Need your tools, right? Like it was step one. Give me the tools so I could equip myself to apply this to big problems. It could be takeout cost, serving customer better, better, whatever. Yep, yep, yep. Critical issue, like phase zero, was there aren't a lot of skills inside of the typical enterprise to wield these tools the way that they needed to to solve the problem. So we started making investments, right? Like there's stuff we were doing in a tool to make it more accessible. But there was also a skill that we're making available on our dime to help our customers. So I introduced something called the Data Elite Team, which are a bunch of wizards that are data scientists that allow a customer to bring a problem, bring their data, bring like the people that have skin in the game to work with us to actually apply data science using various techniques of artificial intelligence, typically machine learning, to see if there was something there there, just to see if that experiment would yield positive results. What we realized was, hey, look, there's not enough. This core data problem is the critical bottleneck, right? Setting aside skills, setting aside tools, which we invested, the industry has invested, I would say, largely in open source to do something about this core data bottleneck is the bottleneck. And unless we figure out a way to solve it, like your ability to use artificial intelligence to build your field of dreams will be largely limited. So I won't say we stumbled on data fabric as an antidote to the AI problem, I guess I will say that. We did stumble <laughs> yeah, on it. Yeah. It was like, hey, look, we better, we better figure out this, this problem. And the current tech, it isn't to build a better data warehouse. Yes, that has a place, right? Like if you're using 100 SaaS apps that are siloed and all of them happen to run on one or more public clouds, consolidating that data into a cloud data warehouse makes sense. And so having the best data warehouse makes sense. But we knew even then, we can make the best data warehouse for the next hundred years to come and the core problem still would not be addressed. And so that kind of is the reason why we reason through this problem. We believe the data fabric, which is supported by tech, but is a idea, a architectural strategy, which is independent of technology. And we certainly have convinced ourselves working with our customers that it is the best hope all of us have as an industry to apply AI, because unless you solve this core data problem, you won't be able to do it. 
Yeah. Yeah. And, well, and like you mentioned, you're, you're working on getting past the other problems. You know, there's the culture and there's the skill problems as well. You know, we need, um, and you had mentioned having this elite team that would go in, help people kind of see the broader capabilities of AI, uh, leverage some of your own high powered talent to be able to bring those things to bear, come up with the good ideas, maybe, uh, build a little bit of excitement so that people are willing to do an R and D type project, which often AI is like, but, even if you had all those things and you had them in spades, if you if you were stuck in silos, you'd be trapped as all heck to do anything meaningful that could make its way into uh, deployment or out of a sandbox somewhere. So interesting to see that this, again, as you had said, technology agnostic kind of approach is almost like what you bumbled into as where we need to go enterprise-wise to make AI come to life. So now we can move into how to start moving in this direction. As you mentioned, there's different ways to do it. I mean, there's different kinds of technologies that are storing various and sundry data, depending on what industry you're in, what country you're in, what have you, what does it look like from an executive's perspective, like one of our listeners, to think through and move towards a data fabric, a source of truth for the most important core data that we have? Start small. Similar with the data science game, it was pick a problem, make sure that we have the adequate data, and there's people with skin in a game in your business that will work with us. We're advising our customers for a data fabric to do the same, right? The intergalactic vision of the data fabric is the 75% of the dark data in your enterprise will all be accessible, will all have data protection. So people that have privilege can access it, people that don't, and you're able to manage the entirety of the life cycle. So for instance, if there's data that you are spending money to manage and it offers and confers zero value to you, then you're deleting it as a for instance. Like that's, that's the outcome we all want to drive. There's no chance you're going to be able to realize it if you set up an agenda with that scope as the initial way yeah. to start. So got, definitely got to start small. Just go back to the two examples I gave you. The customer 360 problem definitive like in tactical terms was it takes me two months to master a single entity. And there's a whole bunch of business pain that I am incurring because I haven't figured out a way to solve the problem. Their experiment was, can you reduce it by 50%? Just give it to me in a month. What we're able to prove is we could do it in days. And that's even with some manual steps throughout the process. Our goal is instantaneous. So starting small, whether it's the customer 360 mastering mastering a single entity, or in the case of the telco, it was, I don't know where PI is. And they had, they had special sensitivity to their data lake in their own private cloud because they were, they were building models and training models and inserting those models in high stakes decision-making and business critical scenarios. And so like they didn't want to inventory the entirety of their IT landscape. It was that data lake, which was under you know, a couple of petabytes large. They just wanted to inventory and analyze for PII. So that those are two small examples where just very targeted initial use cases. And then to make it easy for our customers, I'm saying, hey, look, I'm going to make an investment in you. I'm going to bring a data elite team that can help you stand up the components of a data fabric targeted at that problem. And if we solve the problem, I want to get paid. But then the benefit to you is, yes, you get the, the answer to that particular question or the solution to that particular problem. But I've laid down a a foundation, the underlying components of a data fabric, which can graduate to one that accesses all your data, protects it all, and give you convenient means to move it all in. 
Yeah. So I have one other short question as we wrap, but I, I want to poke into exactly where you're going here. Again, the idea of starting small but thinking big, um, something we've heard on a number of different Everywhere. occasions. Yep. yep. Uh, clearly the way to play the game. And you're saying, look, just like for an AI project, we want to think the same way about this data fabric concept. Totally makes sense. And there is this interesting tension. And I, I've got to get a little bit of your perspective on this because we think about this constantly. When it comes to bringing AI to life in terms of return on investment, there is a tendency to perpetuate the plug and play perspective. So we think about it like a, a continuum where on the one side you have the plug and play perspective, the other side you have a paradigm shift. Plug and play is like tell leadership, tell stakeholders, yeah, it's just like IT, we're just going to plug it in and you know, we'll get this result for you. That's one set of expectations we can have. The other set of expectations, like you said, is the galactic vision, right, of, of all the new ways we can unlock and, and, and uh, uh, bring to bear the value of data and automatically delete things we need to and have features be appended to stuff automatically in ways that are instantly searchable. That's too intimidating, and it's, it's too much work for now. It's also too much of a conceptual shift for now. So it's about explaining this first project to stakeholders who have skin in the game, as you said, the people cutting the checks, the people involved in the projects, involved in the outcomes, finding the right place on that continuum. Because to your point, if you slide all the way to galactic vision, it's just too much. It's too much work, and honestly, it's too much of a conceptual shift. But if you make them think it's just IT then you're not going to get what you just said, what you ended with, which is, hey, you're going you're gonna to wrap this project up with the beginnings of a new way of doing things, what we call a capability ROI. It's not even necessarily the immediate efficiencies you get. It's a capability ROI. So if you don't at least talk about that paradigm shift, then you won't get any of that capability ROI, which is so much of the juice you're articulating. How do you think about explaining and talking to enterprise leaders in a way that's not intimidating, but also steers clear of that plug-and-play model that doesn't let them learn and doesn't let them see that longer-term uh, investment. I'd love your take on this, Daniel. Well, I mean, you and I are kind of running a simulation of the kind of conversations I'm having with clients now, right? And it's driven by some pain point. Oh, sure. I'm yep. spending $30 million on my traditional data warehouse. I've replicated that on my public cloud. I'm spending another $30 million. And then I'm subsetting that for my data science, and I'm spending another $30 million I've got $100 million of total spend on just core data management. And that's not complete, right? Like this is not this is not even talking about the transactional store supporting their mission-critical workloads. And yet, I've got everybody complaining that it takes too long to onboard data. The data quality is suspect. Uh, like, please help, right? So the conversations always start with a critical pain point that yeah. a client is suffering from. And then the discussion is, would the idea of a data fabric help? Because if it is, then let's explore an experiment to get you started to see if an acute and very limited issue could be solved. And in solving that, then we could begin to replicate more capability, deeply integrated, that then graduates to this, this data fabric. So in many ways, to be honest, the conversation here is the conversation with our customers. And I think we're, we're better for it is forcing them to just think about, hey, look, Actually, what I'm challenging them to do is to say, if you continue as you are, or let, I mean, let's even do a thought experiment. Let's imagine you, you're 10x more efficient in what you're doing. Are you going to be that much more successful? I think the answer unequivocally, when these people are thinking about the nature of the problem and their techniques for solving it and the progress so far that they've made despite enormous spend, I think they're, they're willing to say, yeah, no, it's not. And so I better think differently. I better start to experiment with solving the problem in a different way. And I just give them a low cost, low risk way to just start that process. 
Yeah. Okay. I, I, I like where you're headed here. So what you're saying is, you know, it starts with a pain point as any good engagement will, right? When, when we start with, man, we want to start using some AI around here. Uh, those are the most questionable conversations. But if it's, hey, here's a pain point I'm dealing with. We need the right tools and approach. What you're saying is if you can look under the hood at what the cause of this doggone issue is and, and see that the undergirding infra could really be why we've got pain here. If you can make them say, yeah, you know what? This stuff is actually kind of what's holding up the process. Now you can open up a capability conversation and it's not you imposing it. It's them agreeing to it. It's them saying, you know what? I, it is our capabilities that are ultimately bounding us here. And that lets that conversation roll out without it being an intimidating paradigm shift. Uh, you know, a galactic vision, as you said. Galactic vision with a galactic project plan, probably not a good combination, yep. but you know, a, a pretty ambitious vision with a practical way to realize it is kind of what we're arguing here. Yep. Uh, just to, you know, th to talk about the data fabric in isolation is not particularly helpful because no. the data fabric is in support of something, right? Yes, like what, yes, yes, yes. To what end yep. are you trying to use the yep. data fabric? Yep. It exists to supply information with data protection built in that you could do something. If you've got a data science campaign within your business, and you're building, say, models for something like, I don't know, customer onboarding for, say, a loan, you had better make sure that those models that are doing things like determining credit scoring are trustworthy, compliant. And ultimately, you begin to unravel that a little bit and you say, okay, how can I, how can I do that? Yes, the data science tooling, including those that are through tools like mine, Watson Studio, made available through Clockback for Data, are part of the solution. But the underlying data in which those models were initially built need to be back-tested against new information so they can be potentially retrained and new models that are better performing graduated. Like the data fabric should exist to service applications of use like that. Just installing one with no link to consumption is like extremely wasteful too. Of course, yeah. You can't get budget for it anyway, right? I don't know. I mean, uh, in this free interest environment. I mean, like <laughs> Maybe. I mean, I just, I normally see checks get cut when we can address a specific problem. If we say, this is building AI maturity, this will help unlock future capability. I just don't no. see checks. I just don't see checks get cut for that. I see maturity get built for better or for worse. I see maturity get built, whether it's culture skills or infra, like we're talking about. I see maturity in an organization get built as it pertains to and as it follows from the spearhead of a particular project whose ROI can be accountable in a relative near term. And, and what, you're, what you're advocating for is, look, that's how we think about Fabric as well. So, Daniel, closing question, when we, you know, and I think about my own audience, a lot of them are going to be the very early stages of bringing their data to life to make AI a reality. Data Fabric will be one of the many ideas uh, maybe that, that they potentially integrate into their plan. If you were to talk to enterprise leaders who are beginning this journey towards a data fabric and, and towards sort of unlocking their data infra, getting out of the silos and, and getting early use cases rolling, are there any other bits of advice, parting advice you'd give to them to make those initiatives successful? I would link it to kind of a use case around use. So I would let, let me organize them in Business analytics, everything from classical BI to predictive analytics, are, are going to generate the need for data that may or may not be easy to consume, in so much as the data is not easy to get because you can't self-service it, is a good sign that a data fabric ought to be married to it. I talked a little bit about the data, data science scenarios where you're building models, you're putting them into 
into business critical scenarios. And you need to be able to trust that those models perform as advertised, continue to perform as advertised. And that ultimately is going to create a need for you to make sure that the stuff that it was trained on is good and that the stuff that it will continuously be trained on is current, contemporary, reflective of the reality of the business. So that's yet a good, another good example. And then in terms of protection, like there are a lot of data privacy and compliance obligations that are difficult to solve with current methods of data governance and compliance. And a data fabric offers ways to help you meet those obligations cost effectively and with benefits that are that have nothing to do with compliance at all. Like if I mean I go back to the telco scenario. Yeah, yeah. If if I understand with my where my PII data is, I know where my data is, I know what it is. And because of that, I can actually put it to work. So data discovery scenarios, building model scenarios like are are secondary benefits of dealing with things like privacy and compliance. Uh, but those anchoring your data fabric ambitions against one of those three critical areas, data science, business analytics, and uh, compliance and data privacy are generally where I encourage our customers to start because it'll force you to confront the data problem and realize, hey, your methods for solving that problem today are not adequate. And you, but if you want to do something about it, you're going to have to take an alternative approach. Cool. Okay. So you've got kind of three three lenses that that'll often lead back to fabric, make it a valid uh, choice yeah. and selection. I, hopefully this is useful advice for the folks who are in the enterprise who not only have to spot these opportunities of where to start this journey, but also communicate its value upstairs. Lots and lots of meat in this episode. Daniel, I know that's all we have for time, but I sincerely appreciate you sharing your expertise here. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you, Dan. And that's all for this episode of the AI in Business podcast. A big thank you to Daniel for joining us on this episode. And thank you to you, our listeners, for tuning in all the way through to the end. If you're not already following us on social, then be sure to do so. You can find us at at E-M-E-R-J on Twitter or Emerge Artificial Intelligence Research on LinkedIn or on Facebook. And there you can get up to speed on not only all of our latest use cases and interviews, uh, but also all of our latest articles and infographics. Uh, we're coming out with new frameworks for AI ROI, AI strategy on a regular basis. And every now and again, some of that content, which is reserved for Emerge Plus members, will include in our newsletter uh, and, and in our social posts. So you can, again, go to E-M-E-R-J on Twitter or Emerge Artificial Intelligence Research on LinkedIn or Facebook. Be sure to follow us there. We've grown a lot on LinkedIn ever since we started mentioning it on the podcast. So I am grateful as heck to have many of you listeners already with us on the social conversation and hope to chat with more of you over the years ahead. So uh, connect with us there and otherwise keep it locked here on the AI and Business Podcast. I'll catch you next time.